Welcome to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Bandatini. Here, I interview brain scientists and discuss their insights and their work, as well as the latest advances in brain mapping. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Lily Mujica Parodi. She's the director of the Laboratory for Computational Neurodiagnostics, LC Neuro, at Stony Brook University. LC Neuro's research focuses on the application of control systems engineering and dynamical systems to human neuroimaging time series with neurodiagnostic applications to neurological and psychiatric disorders. Dr. Mojica Perotti received her bachelor's degree in philosophy and physics from Georgetown University in 1992, her PhD in philosophy from Columbia University, and carried out her postdoc in clinical neuroscience, neuroimaging, and psychiatry, also at Columbia University. One of her lab's primary goals is to understand and identify key points of failure in the regulation of neural control circuits, which depending upon how they break, lead to signs and symptoms that cluster as distinct psychiatric diagnoses. This work has shed light on the prefrontal limbic circuit and how it computes potential threat in the face of incomplete sensory data across a clinical spectrum that ranges from pathological fear to recklessness. Her lab analyzes time series coherence as an indicator of network stability. This stability, she has shown, decreases with age yet increases with the introduction of an alternate energy source, ketones, and is directly related to behavior. In addition to stability, network structure also changes with available energy. These insights may shed light on deficits associated with diabetes and aging and point to ways to alleviate some cognitive symptoms. Her team has built a flat platform called Neuroblocks for creating and testing network and node interactions using specific transfer functions for nodes to determine how the brain computes. She constrains these models with brain activation data and behavior and has shown that this is a potentially powerful approach that moves brain mapping into dynamic brain modeling, shedding light into specific mechanisms of psychiatric disorders at the circuit level. In this conversation, we cover all this ground as Lily explains her research. A few things characterize Lily. She's deeply original, thinking consistently from first principles. She's fiercely independent, and has a broad grounding in a wide range of skills. And she's also intellectually fearless. I truly enjoyed this conversation and hope you will too. All right, welcome Lily. Uh, Lily Mojica, Mojica Parodi, uh, um, welcome to the, the OHBM Neurosalience podcast. And Thanks so much, Peter. Yeah, well, pleasure to be here. Well, it really is a pleasure to have you. And um, 
I've been wanting to interview you because I, you know, I've, I think I've known you almost a decade. I think you know, I, I met you maybe in 2013 or 14, something like that. But, and I've always felt that, um, you know, what your, what your work uh, in fMRI and other domains uh, uh, represented was something that was, I, I felt, always felt it was extremely unique and it always had a, um, and it was unique because, uh, you know, it wasn't just, oh, I'm just doing this or this, you know, you have very specific questions in mind. And, and it was unique also because of, uh, I felt two things. One, um, there was an aspect of understanding metabolism, but also an aspect of, you know, you bring to bear your physics background on, on really careful modeling of what generally people feel is, is sort of defies modeling, but, but it's, but you, you've been doing a great job with that. And I think, uh, it's worth talking about as far as the way, uh, the field could go with that approach. So, uh, just to begin, and, and this, this podcast will hopefully cover everything from, you know, computational, uh, neuroscience, metabolic neuroscience, uh, anxiety, and, and maybe clinical applications. Um, so just a very, just to begin, let's look at a little bit at your history. Uh, 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 your background, I actually was, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, um, you, you received a PhD in, in philosophy. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so what was your path between that and what you're doing now as far as, uh, and, and how does philosophy uh, help you in, in your research right now? Um, well, so first I should say, um, so the type of philosophy I was focusing on was mathematical logic. Okay. Um, so <laughs> it was in some ways, I would say kind of closer to math. Um, yes. It's a little bit close to set theory. Um, and I think one aspect of working in a field that's very proof-based, very analytical, is the whole kind of way of systematizing knowledge. So um, the way I love to work, which, you know, the, the way that feels most intuitive to me is, is starting from first principles and, you know, starting from some set of premises uh, you know, and some set of inferences and then deriving sort of intermediate lemmas and then using those lemmas to then, you know, construct a proof that comes to some conclusion. And um, that imposes a kind of analytic structure to your thinking. Um, and in many ways, I have really thought about my research in those terms. So what are the, if we start from the beginning and we think about what we actually know and what we don't know, um, you know, people may be surprised to know, you know, what the limits are, the boundaries are of what we really have hard knowledge of, as opposed to, you know, sort of cultural acceptance of, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, but then in addition, you can ask, um, you know, what are the intermediary stopping points, the lemmas that we have to establish in order to then get to our end goal? Um, so I would say um, that is kind of a way of thinking that informs uh, my experiments and also in thinking about my career trajectory. Um, and I, that might be a little unusual. Yeah, and, and I think it's an advantage actually, as a matter of fact, um... Actually, I was even listening to one of your talks recently, and uh, I think it was from 2016. Yeah, at the very end, you say, you know, the field needs more 
philosophers or you know physicists or engineers, but uh, but the philosophers part um, is exactly this sort of thing where uh, I think that's what you meant um, in, in this regard. And I and I totally agree. I actually think that um, usually people come into the field very empirical, like they just want to. They first need to learn a lot of things, and then they start just doing experiments. And they they realize there's kind of a question there, and they're trying to do it, and they try to get information. But but having this sort of a more formalized structure in your head as to as to what you're really doing and and how you're asking questions and and what you're assuming and what you're not. Uh, I think really could help, um, would help me at least. So, so yeah, I think, and I think it's helped guide a, a lot of what you're, what you're doing in, in that regard. Um, so yeah. I would say the, the other aspect in which it's informed the way I think it is, is also kind of having a, a meta appreciation for the, the field of science and how it operates. Um, and maybe this is sort of a, an outsider's perspective, but you know, I think rather than sort of jumping in and you know starting with some training as an undergraduate that then is pursued as a graduate student and then a postdoc and a professor, um, to me it's been interesting to see the degree to which the mores of experimental science in the form of hypothesis testing sometimes go a little unexamined, right? Even in terms of dealing with problems like confirmation bias. Yes. So I would okay. say those are the sorts of problems that also um, I think are, are, are part of the field, but um, maybe have been a little underappreciated. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's, I think we are catching up. I mean, I think that there are, there's sort of a collective appreciation of, of you know, these sort of errors that, that can happen. And so I think, I'd like to think that the field is evolving in terms of how we're asking questions and and how we're answering them as well. But so um, so as far as also your training, uh, so were there any just to just to cover a little bit more of your background? Uh, uh, were there any specific uh, like advisors or even uh, so? I'll, I'll lump two questions into one. I mean, were there any advisors or even key moments in your training that you that you decided you know? that were very important in terms of deciding to go into uh, brain imaging, as far as that's concerned. Um, and were advisors and collaborators uh, helpful? <laughs> um, so I would say that my thesis advisor, uh, Richard Friedberg, um, he was in, th in the theoretical physics department at Columbia. So, I mean, I was in, I was in uh, philosophy, but I was, my thesis advisor was in theoretical physics. And um, <laughs> and he had a really kind of lovely way of thinking about problems and discussing problems, um, very supportive of thinking about other fields as well. Um, when I transitioned to um, the medical school at Columbia, um, uh, Donald Klein was an excellent mentor. I don't know if you knew him, but he yeah, was yeah. really one of the founders of, um, psychopharmacology and very careful kind of critical thinker. And I got a, a lot of very good training and having uh, many, many discussions with him. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Well, uh, all right. So, so let's uh, go forward to, you know, uh, your research. I think, 
I think our, one of our first conversations uh, uh, regarding some of your research was in the whole area of diet and metabolism. Uh, <clears throat> and, and I think, uh, you know, you have two recent papers that were, I, that were really great, but you've been thinking about this for a long time. I mean, two papers in PADS in 2020 and 2021. I guess we could start with that. Uh, just basically looking at uh, measures of brain syn synchrony, uh, determining how they're related to uh, brain metabolism, how it changes when you age, but also how it changes uh, with diet. And, uh, and so, and you have, and the results are just, are, are really clean and, and really interesting. Uh, would you mind um, maybe without, you know, focusing on any one paper or the other, just sort of generally uh, describing your research in this area uh, and what you found. I, I, you know, specifically, I was intrigued by, you know, the effects of, you know, ketones um, uh, and, and the theory that, and the, and the sort of the really nice sort of construct that uh, a, a lot of cognitive decline with aging is simply that the brain is less efficient at using glucose and and how that breaks down the networks in specific ways. So yeah, um, I'm interested in you so, describing that. Yeah, I mean, there is, um, there's a truism in neuroscience um, that, you know, the brain is 2% is of our body weight, but consumes about 20% of our energy, right? And so it's a, it's a very energy intensive organ. And the assumption is that we are, uh, you know, the brain is constructed in ways topologically that it sort of maximizes its efficiency um, in terms of uh, use of energy. So the question is, um, so that's very interesting, but then, you know, how do you operationalize that? You know, how do you go beyond that and really start thinking about the mechanisms by which ener energy utilization actually changes um, functioning? And so, um, the only way to really think about this as a, is as a sort of a multi-scale model where you have this bottom, bottom layer at the neuronal scale that then sort of propagates up to the, the uh, whole brain scale. And one of the things we've been very interested in is constructing those sorts of models, these generative models that can show how cha small changes at the, at the micro level have huge emergent effects at the macro level. So um, one of the things that we know is that there is this um, hypometabolism that occurs as we age. Um, it's true not only for people who are um, who are have clinical symptoms of dementia, but it, you start to see the beginnings of this even in people who have mild cognitive impairment. And so the thought is that this might be sort of a um, progressive issue that it doesn't, it's not that all of a sudden you wake up and you have dementia, but there might be kind of a, a long degenerative process that occurs um, over time. Certainly we know that in terms of peripheral insulin resistance, so you have your glucose, glucose insulin regulation and it's a control circuit. And anytime you tax, you overtax a control circuit over long periods of time, over time that control circuit starts to become lax, it starts to break down and the regulation starts to become less tight. And so generally, you know, we know that if, if 
any person follows a high glycemic index diet for a long period of time, eventually to some degree, they'll become insulin resistant. Whether that happens faster or slower has a very strong genetic component. Some people are naturally more sensitive than others, um, but it's a general feature. And so if we think then about what's happening to neurons, so there are many mechanisms by which the brain might run out of fuel. Um, so the fact that it's hypometabolic doesn't imply necessarily insulin resistance. It's one of several potential mechanisms. But the insulin resistance seemed like a very um, obvious candidate to be looking at. Even if it turned out to be wrong, at least then what you do is you'd exclude it and, and look at other potential mechanisms. One of Yes. Oh, what, um, one, one thought that occurred to me too, though, uh, with, with diabetes, for instance, if you have, you have insulin resistance, but you also have potentially vascular effects as, as well. That, right, exactly. You know, potentially, so. Yeah, yeah so, so, um, so I will get to that. I mean, we've definitely been considering that as well. And certainly in the context of fMRI, the vascular effects are very relevant. Um, so what we decided to do was to, to start looking at the impact of um, insulin resistance on neurons at you know, the microscopic scale and also look at um, what's happening at the macroscopic scale with, um, with fMRI. We started by looking at healthy individuals um, across the lifespan. And we found that there was this um, destabilization of networks where destabilization is really a very straightforward thing. We're looking at um, you know, the correlation matrix, the adjacency matrix at any particular time, and then asking how is that changing over time? And in general, um, you know, when you talk about stability or instability of networks, um, it makes it sound like one is good, the other is bad. And of course, that's not the case. I mean, a truly stable network would be one that was dead, um, but a truly in unstable one would also be a problem. And so there's sort of an optimal you know, U-shaped curve. But what we find is that in order to, for there to be processing within some particular circuit, you know, the network needs to be activated long enough for that processing. And interestingly enough, we found that as people age, those networks do become destabilized. And we were able to replicate this in several large scale data sets. So initially we were a little bit surprised um, that um, it was not just that it became destabilized over with age, but it really had this very characteristic sigmoidal shape to it. Um, so we initially showed this in, in the CAMCAN data set, which is 636 subjects, and then later replicated it with HCP, which is another 725. Um, and then also with the Leipzig, which is another 292. And in general, you see this behavior. Um, and certainly, you know, when you see this sigmoid, you'd like to know, well, what's driving it? Um, so the base of the sigmoid starts in the late 40s. And then you see this very steep destabilization. And if you look at the very end point, there's a precipitous drop. And then it becomes hyper-stabilized at the very end. Um, and... What we find is that this sigmoid, which seems to be replicating over and over again in healthy individuals, when you look at people with um, APO4, uh, APEO4 positive um, you know, status, the sigmoid becomes dramatically accentuated. Mm. So the same sigmoid, it exists, it looks the same, but it's much more uh, dramatic. So, and, so, yeah. I can, so just to reiterate, so uh, 
as you age, so it's a sigmoid that just kind of goes up. So, that, so a measure of, of uh, stabi network stability. Uh, and so it's basically becoming less synchronized Let, or network yeah. synchronization. So, so yeah. your brain, and, and then just to quickly uh, address some things that might be on people's minds, uh, you know, controlling for like, you know, things like motion and CSF or physiologic noise and things like that. That's, that's usually pretty constant or, or might even go the other way potentially. Um, so those aren't factors. It's, it's really is a measure of, uh, uh, so you you used fMRI to to look at this, and you also looked originally at fMRI, and then we started also looking. There was an MEG data set that we looked at. Um, we've been looking also at EEG, um, and we see the same behavior. So that suggests, given that it's present also in MEG and EEG, it's present. It, it seems to be not only vascular. So it might yeah. have a vascular component, but certainly the sigmoid is not just driven by the vascular changes. Um, and then the interesting thing is that, um, so, so the question is what's driving this? Um, the thought is that what's happening during the sigmoid is that there is at the bottom of the sigmoid, basically there's this homeostatic regulation that is happening as, uh, the brain starts to run out of fuel, but at a certain point, it looks like there's some degree of metabolic stress meaning the brain is starting to run out of energy to some degree. The brain is still able to compensate for it, but there is some element of struggle that is happening during you know, the middle part of the sigmoid. And what we think is happening at the end of the sigmoid is that you hit a breaking point. And at that point, the neurons have, have run out of fuel to such a degree that they can't survive anymore. And then you see this precipitous drop, which seems to be associated with atrophy. So this, this is a really important um, feature because it suggests that if you are going to treat metabolic stress, there's a window of opportunity for doing it. And it might be pre-symptomatic. Yeah. So none of us thinks that you know by our late 40s, we're showing symptoms of cognitive decline, but at the same time, it suggests that if we're going to treat this metabolic stress, we might have to not rely on symptoms as the you know trigger for us to do something about it. Okay. Yeah. No, that's interesting. So, so and the idea then once again is is basically the regions of the brain that are typically easily able to communicate to to synthesize information are, you know, that sort of that the network fidelity is sort of going down to some degree, and and then they're tr they're basically trying other connections and strategies. And, and so that results in a decircularization to some, de to some degree. And so yeah, one, hypo one hypothesis is that basically the brain is kind of re-optimizing. It's trying to find an optimization strategy that will allow it to conserve fuel by, pick, by finding cheaper routes. Yeah. That's a hypothesis. And I don't think we have an answer to that yet, but we're starting to see some clues that something like this might be happening. At the bottom scale, I can say, um, although our results are still preliminary, we what we see is that when um, we're collaborating with um, Nathan Smith at uh, University of Rochester, who's been doing um, experiments with field recordings, patch clamp, um, he'll be doing calcium imaging and then up to EEG. And what we see at this point with the field recordings and the beginnings of the patch clamp recordings is that um, there seems to be really profound changes to uh, 
firing dynamics at the single neuron scale, but then you know when you look at field recordings, you see um, changes in uh, axon conductance velocity. Yeah. And all of those are going to have implications at the top scale for how those networks um, are formed and then held online. Yeah. So um, in terms of trying to figure out what the mechanism was, um, we started using uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate because um, there are lots of potential mechanisms, but what BHB allowed us to do was to isolate the mechanism specifically to um, GLUT4, yeah. right? So if what we're thinking is that there's insulin resistance, the idea is that um, GLUT4 is not, the signaling uh, with insulin is not working properly and the glucose is not able to get into the cell. But of course there's a back door um, and beta hydroxybutyrate is able to enter the cell without GLUT4. So um, we started off by looking at healthy individuals who were young. And what we found is that actually, um, we started off actually looking at dietary changes. So initially we had individuals under fasting state, um, normal glycemic index diet, standard American diet really. Yep. Um, and then with a ketogenic diet, but just for, for one week. And what we found actually was that even after these really short-term dietary interventions, we see dramatic changes in the stability of these networks. Um, and then this was replicated with uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate um, for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, when you change someone's diet, you're changing lots of variables. Um, and so what we were able to do with the BHB is to control for the dose um, it was weight dosed, it was uh, calorically matched. And so we knew that whatever changes we were getting in the network uh, stabilization or destabilization, that they weren't caused by caloric changes. They were specifically um, related to the fuel substrate. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what's really interesting about this as well is that uh, ketogenic diets, you know, beta-hydroxybutyrate has been, has been used uh, you know, to reduce epilepsy. Uh, it's one of the most effective dietary interventions for reducing epilepsy. So it seems like there should, could be some relationship there in that regard. So, yeah. Well, we, I mean, I would say one of the reasons this is a really interesting field to look into is that there are some very fundamental questions we don't know the answers to. Yeah. So as for why it works with epilepsy, I mean, there's some hypotheses in terms of how it affects GABA, but um, I think there's still a lot of foundational work to be done. So they may or may not be related, but but either way, yeah. But it, but but overall, uh, the the hypothesis at least is that this backdoor, this energy source, uh, somehow just amps up or in, in, in increases the metabolism of the neurons such that the network integrity is better preserved in that regard. So interestingly enough, so uh, the the thought is that. Um, that the BHB is uh, a better fuel source in some ways. It's a more um, metabolically efficient fuel source than glucose. What we find is that even in people who don't have insulin resistance, it's stabilizing networks uh, as compared to glucose. Um, that was surprising because uh, it's always been, I think, assumed that glucose is the brain's natural substrate. and how could you do better than glucose? But it does appear to be the case. And when we look again at the, um, at the field recordings, we see that the conduction velocity uh, with beta-hydroxybutyrate, the same stuff that we're giving to the humans, 
increases above glucose um, in these neurons. So it's, it seems to be true at all scales. And for me, that was a very shocking result Um, because we're used to thinking of, well, in a deficit state, maybe this is correcting for something that's wrong, but it suggests that even in a non-deficit state, there may be advantages to utilizing ketones. Interestingly enough, getting back to the sigmoid, um, what we're finding is that, so the ketones have this very dramatic effect. It's really 30 minutes after they take, they take it that actually that you start seeing effects and it persists for at least an hour afterwards. We, at least that's when we stop measuring and we still see an effect. But interestingly enough, um, so the biggest effect is during that, the meat of that sigmoid that I was just describing the period that we think is related to metabolic stress. But once people get to that peak of the sigmoid, the ketones don't do anything anymore. Ah. And um, so it suggests that again, there seems to be sort of a window of opportunity for refeeding these neurons. But if you miss that window, it may not be possible to treat it in this way. Okay. And other interventions, uh, you know, aside from ketones, uh, you know, one might think, oh, well, why not just find other ways of increasing the metabolic rate? I mean, sure, uh, you know, glucose is available. And maybe, maybe if you just simply, uh, you know, right, I mean, drinking more coffee or, or uh, exercise or, or other things like, you know, people have thought infrared light, you know, helps. Uh, what do you think of that? I mean, I guess without the fuel source, without using, without effectively using the fuel source, trying to do that seems like it's uh, less effective, but um, yeah. I mean, certainly, um, so exercise is thought to increase insulin sensitivity regardless. So you'd think that anything that would increase insulin sensitivity is going to help address this problem. Um, you know, it can prevent insulin resistance to begin with because it'll blunt the glycemic index of whatever it is you're consuming. Um, you know, exercise has other effects yeah. on the brain in terms of BDNF and so forth. Yeah. So, I mean, all of these interventions have a lot of different pathways. So it's, yeah. you know, you don't, you have to be careful about isolating those pathways. Right, right. Um, but that's, it's really remarkable. I mean, even the, you know, looking at the network stability and looking at even behavior, like you, you showed with, you know, giving ketones with typically healthy people, they can you know, they, their, their sustained attention or, or uh, reaction times or things like that, that you've measured were you know, improved. So that was, that was interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then actually, you know, the, 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 I mean, you mentioned this whole issue of the, um, the Ising model and yeah. this other paper. And again, this gets at the fact that there is a sort of a discontinuous process where um, you know, the Ising model is designed specifically to look at phase transitions. And you might ask, well, what kind of phase transition is going on? Interestingly enough, again, the phase transition that is picked out by the model is not occurring uh, you know, in old age. The, fa- the phase transition was picked out again in the late 40s. So mm-hmm. something is changing at that point um, that is kind of dramatic. Huh. That's interesting. That's interesting. So, so right. The Isaac, I mean, and that sort of brings to mind. Um, so right. The Isaac model is, is the way that you address uh, your fMRI data and, and perhaps even 
the other measures, but specifically I saw it in the context of fMRI where it's a very computationally, I mean, a lot of people are trying to do this, including myself, trying to you know, find ways of coming up with really good measures of uh, you know, connectivity over time. And, you know, windowed correlation is one way, but, but this model seems like it's elegant and computationally efficient and it, and it's really sensitive. So, um, maybe it might be something more people could use as far as that's concerned. And I, I'm, I'm kind of just from a methodological standpoint, it'd be interesting to see if you see the same results with other, you know, the more standard approaches. Um, maybe not, I don't, I don't know. So, so, that, so do you think that, I mean, this is another question uh, before we get on to another topic, but um, you know, that there are parts of the brain that might be, you know, there's certain hubs of communication. There's certain maybe uh, areas where things are controlled, you know, to the extent that you have a reduction in metabolism, uh, they might, it, it, there's a chance that uh, some areas might be either influence more effect, influence more uh, other areas or, uh, um, you know, might have a different metabolic pro profile in that regard. Um, so. Well, th with the Ising model um, paper, I mean, what we were seeing is that, you know, there are periods. So if you are to look at like, you know, your, your time series over time, um, at every particular time point, there are periods of high synchronization or low synchronization. Yep. And what you find is that during the periods of low synchronization, the networks that get activated are primarily the segregated networks. These are the local networks that are, you know, computing locally. Um, and during the periods of um, high synchronization, the networks that are added to that are the integrated ones, the ones that are connecting those local networks. And so what seems to be happening is that during this um, transition period, um, there is a kind of an abrupt change between having equal access to both of those functions, which after all, it's not like one is better than the other. They have to operate interchangeably in order for you know, the circuits to work properly. Um, but at a certain point, there seems to be then a bias towards the segregated at the expense of the integrated. And again, getting back to this axon conduction velocity result, I mean, if in fact there is a slowing down of conduction along long axons, um, obviously it's those longer connections that are going to see an effect more so than the short ones. And yeah. so this might actually provide a mechanism for that. Hmm. Yeah, and that's, a, I, that, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, there's a, I mean, I, I like the idea, uh, the model in, in terms of, you know, integration versus segregation and, uh, you know, the long-term, the long range connections are metabolically more demanding and maybe more fragile in that regard uh, as far as metabolically. And so, and what, what are the implications when those long range connections break down maybe before the, the short range connections? And so... That's a, well, so so that's yeah. a really the next step because, as you know, most of the work we had been doing previous to that, to getting into metabolism, was thinking about circuits, and um, you know we're doing this kind of foray into networks to think about metabolism in the context of affecting networks. But ultimately, the next step is to go back to circuits and ask how is metabolism then affecting the dynamics of these circuits and how they they regulate and process information. Yeah, yeah. 
So, so that's a perfect segue into um, the other aspect of what you're doing. And that is, uh, I mean, you, you're doing several areas, working in several areas, but one is computational psychiatry. And um, what I found really unique about your perspective and your work is that um, you, really, you really have been trying to apply rigorous generative models uh, to what you're doing, as opposed to just mapping or looking for biomarkers or things like that. Uh, you have, you know, very specific hypothesis, you know, very circuit level hypothesis uh, that you're testing. And just before I get into that, I, I thought, you know, you had a review article uh, uh, in uh, journal, journal of Neuropsychopharmacology in 2020 that really set things up, I think, kind of nicely, differently than other that I've seen other setups. But, you know, you basically say, well, there's three types of, of models. There's you know, sort of a bottom-up sort of reductionist sort of approach where you start with neurons and you just sort of build. Uh, and the other one is looking at, uh, the second one is looking at sort of this uh, emergent properties of, you know, any sort of measurable effect. And you're trying to sort of then iterate between, you know, building hypotheses that explain that effect. And, and the third one is sort of interesting where you're, you, you say it's more of an information theoretic uh, approach where you assume that sort of the goal is to optimize efficiency and how does the brain do that sort of pretty well. And I, I like that, that construct and, and sort of you're at like in the middle, uh, the second one in, in some regard, uh, as far as that's concerned. But, uh, so I think that um, a lot of this approach was very um, influenced by the fact that I also, I mean, I have a lot of experience modeling systems outside the brain. So I'm very interested in physiological control systems. I, I teach a course, a graduate course on modeling physiological control circuits. And that would include autonomic control circuits, you know, endocrine control circuits, uh, immune control circuits, and so forth. And what you start to see is that nature doesn't reinvent the wheel every single time it needs to maintain homeostasis. I mean, there are some cer certain types of circuit architectures that get used over and over and over again in different systems, but also at different scales. And so what you really wind up with is, is a system of nested control circuits. And I think that sometimes this is insufficiently appreciated because control circuits behave in ways that aren't necessarily amenable to statistical analyses. Um, so when you yeah. look, for example, at you know a healthy person and a type one diabetic or type two diabetic. And you, if you're taking a you know, um, invasive uh, glucometer and looking at a, a continuous measure of their glucose over time, you know, what you'll find is that the distinction between the patient and the control is not uh, the value of the glucose. You know, someone who has diabetes might have a glucose level that is higher than that of a control. It could be lower than that of a control. It could be the same as that of a control. What distinguishes someone with diabetes versus not is the dynamics of the regulatory um, behavior, not the value per se, or even the average value per se. And so the problem is that statistical analyses are usually looking at some value and comparing that value between populations. Yep. But if what is relevant is not that value, but rather the dynamics, it's going to not be very sensitive in identifying the mechanism. Yes. So um, one of the things that 
that was interesting to me when I first started moving into psychiatry and psychiatric neuroscience is that, um, you know, people often, when they started doing neuroimaging in patients, all sorts of different types of patients, what was really amazing was that the same areas of the brain were implicated in almost every psychiatric disorder. And what that seems to suggest is that it's not a kind of lesion model where, you know, something gets knocked out, you know, and, and, and it's in this population, but not in that population, depending on where it gets knocked out, then that'll give you different types of psychiatric disorders. Yep. Um, it's probably closer to thinking about diabetes where you have disorders of the same circuit, you know, you type one and type two diabetes are both dysregulations. They're different types of dysregulations of the same control circuit where a feed forward problem gives you one type of disorder. The feedback problem gives you a different type of disorder. But what's really interesting is that if you were to look at the, you know, type one and type two diabetics, what you would notice is that they don't seem to have very many features in common. So, you know, type two diabetics tend to be overweight, type one diabetics tend to be underweight, you know. And what's also very interesting about diabetes is that you, you see vision problems, you see foot problems, you see all sorts of problems that don't seem to have anything to do with the mechanism that's actually driving the disorder. And to me, that's actually very instructive. It suggests that probably those sorts of considerations are also need to be taken into account in psychiatric disorders where, the symptoms may radically change as a function of the type of dysregulation. And rather than saying, oh, it's this network with this type of disorder, and this network with that type of disorder, it might very well be the same circuit that's dysregulated in three or four or five different ways. And trying to understand what those dysregulations are, what those candidate mechanisms are, is ultimately what might be most successful in distinguishing the disorders. Yeah. yeah. Go, go on. Sorry. Go ahead. No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, I was going to mention that you have you have several ways of actually. I mean, it was really interesting to see that along those lines of probing dysregulation. Uh, you know, showing uh, um, examples of how the brain doesn't come back to its regular state after a perturbation. I don't, I don't know if you wanted you, you were going into talking about that or not, but uh. <laughs> well, I I think actually that's also kind of important because um, there's been such a move towards resting state uh, studies, and it's a little bit of a cautionary note because. Um, when you really, when you want to look, I mean, I said, if you look at a diabetic, diabetic might look exactly like a healthy control, um, unless you actually perturb the system and you give them 75 grams of glucose, yeah. right, with a glucose tolerance test. And so, um, although resting state has a lot of potential, um, it's worth considering that, that unless you perturb the system, you, you might not be uh, looking at regulation as efficiently as you would if you were actually um, upsetting it somehow and then looking at how it returns to baseline. Yeah. And, and so how have you uh, been perturbing the system in this regard? I mean, I, you had a couple of really nice papers on, on the, basically in, invoking the ventral medial prefrontal cortex as sort of like this regulator of anxiety and, and, and you know, taking information and then uh, giving sort of a, you know, speaking to the amygdala. I don't know if you want to mention that in some um, sense. You know, I mean, when we started looking at the prefrontal limbic circuit, I mean, the standard ways of activation, activating emotion uh, responses, emotional responses was to show angry faces and fearful faces. Um, 
certainly kind of we started there and then kind of more influenced by the animal research, you know, like Joe Ledoux's work, we started looking at fear conditioning. Um, and uh, I think our most unusual way of activating the circuit was um, <laughs> a brief foray into alarm pheromones where, I mean, the problem that I was having with all of our stimuli is that um, humans are very good at cognitive blocking. If you see that somebody is presenting a stimulus, you understand that, you know, that you're being manipulated in some sense. And so I was curious to see if we could activate this prefrontal limbic circuit by uh, unconscious means. And so I was kind of very influenced by uh, some of the animal research on alarm pheromones. We decided we could replicate that, which, which we did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that, that was a really, that was a fun study where you basically collected sweat from, uh, you know, people from who were either exercising or jumping out of planes, uh, presenting it to, to people and, and actually showing that there's amygdala activation with this odorless, you know, you know, only the, the stress induced sweat. And have there been follow-ups on that? Is there is there an idea of what the mechanism is? I, I, when I was reading those papers, I was thinking, oh, you know, this is you think that people could synthesize this, or uh, either because it actually didn't invoke, you know, this behave this overt behavior, just like the uh, the studies on on mice. It's like you know, with mice, uh, if there was fear, they actually became you know manifestly fearful, but here it just simply so, upregulated. Uh, I would actually, I'm not sure that's the case. Okay. So what happens with the rodents is that the alarm pheromone, it's not, so if you think about, um, you know, it, a fear response, let's, let's say the environment in which alarm pheromones evolved is, you know, you have some, you know, mouse out in a field and it, one of them detects a predator, uh, you know, freaking out is not a very adaptive response because it's just going to gain the attention of a predator. So there has to be some way to sort of communicate with others of uh, conspecifics, others of the same species. Um, but what the pheromone actually does, if you look carefully at, at the behavioral responses, it actually increases, um, you know, it, it causes freezing, uh, tracking, sniffing, that's information gathering. Yeah. And what yeah. it really seems to do is to sharpen uh, perception of threat, um, but also distinguishing between threat and non-threat. So what yeah. happens is that normally we're kind of sloppy about paying attention to our environment and the alarm pheromone actually seems to uh, sharpen our perception of threat. And we saw something very similar in humans as well. So it didn't induce fear, but I would say it didn't induce fear in the, in the animals either. Okay. Okay. And it's... Uh and you know, always, I think you know, one of the really cool concepts that's, I mean, everyone kind of knows, but it's worth restating. It's it's all about. It seems that like it's all about homeostasis. It's all about, you know, you, you gather information, and, and if you if you make an error in terms of thinking it's a threat when it's not, uh, you make an error that could affect your survival. If you if you make the error the other way. Uh, you could also affect your survival. And it, the whole goal is homeostasis. I mean, even some people argue that, you know, the manifestation of our own conscious experience is a form of homeostasis uh, in this regard. I mean, so it, it's a really interesting construct for, for thinking about. Um, it's actually a very elegant mechanism because it's, it's kind of the, the processing of the stimuli is, is a sort of a just-in-time type mechanism. So there's a default excitatory response but there's this 
in, in you know, this, this processing of sensory stimuli that runs in the background. And as, as soon as the brain has enough information, it then, you know, ideally then inhibits the amygdala. Yep. But what happens we found in the individuals with greater anxiety, um, trait anxiety, and then even more in a more extreme way with clinical anxiety is that they get trapped in this sort of uh, information processing loop. Um, and therefore then there's this delay in the inhibition of the amygdala. Um, so it really was more of a, a sensory or information processing problem rather than a, an emotional problem per se of these limbic regions, yeah. which is kind of counterintuitive again, unless you're thinking about it as a circuit as opposed to simply regions that, you know, well, this goes up and this goes down. I mean, it's, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. And, and are there ways of, I mean, so let's say we have, I mean, so I think that's the way, I'll, 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 you know, we're trying to go with brain imaging. I mean, psychiatry is, you know, by all measures, it's, it's um, you know, relies on just purely behavioral assessment and, you know, really trying to go to the brain. We start by saying circuits. Um, but how do you actually, like in humans, you know, it, it, it's, it's all this sort of, you know, subcortical prefrontal uh, limbic sort of circuit. How do you how do you further probe this? Do you have to come up with really good paradigms, uh, and then obviously you have to make your generative models, and uh, and you know it's all very nonlinear as well. But how do you actually you know fMRI? Some would argue that might be not specific enough or fast enough. Uh, you know EEG. There's all these limitations. I mean, how how do you actually how would you further develop this approach? Um, as far as that, I mean, maybe you're, you're thinking of that well, just now. <laughs> well, definitely. I'm definitely thinking about it. I mean, the first thing to say is, um, I think that, I mean, I think you'd agree. Every single modality has its strengths and weaknesses. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, what you need to do is to use a variety of different modalities and see how they combine to tell you a, a coherent picture. And what I mean by that is that so fMRI has, of course, the limitation that it's an indirect measure that's hemodynamic, so you're not measuring a neuronal response directly. But where, where it has, where it shines, is that you have access to the entire brain. So it really functions well as an exploratory modality where you have access to the, potentially the entire circuit. One of the, um, one of the aspects is getting back to my, you know, starting from first principles that, that has really informed my way of approaching problems is I have a very strong mistrust of, of assuming that I think I know what the circuit is or what the network is um, without actually letting the data tell us. Yeah. Um, I think that there has been a lot of, let's say local minima in terms of groups saying, oh, I did an experiment, I found this, and then everybody else sort of looks for the same thing and they find it, but not really considering alternative hypotheses. So, yeah. um, and certainly this happened with the prefrontal limbic circuit, even with Joe Ledoux's work um, with mice because, and rats, because the problem was, and this is getting to the limitations of electrophysiology, um, you have to know where to put the electrodes, Yeah. right? And so yeah. to a large extent, the hypotheses you're going to be able to test are going to be driven by where you're measuring. And since you can't measure everywhere, and because these experiments are hard, um, you might miss something crucial. And so this whole ventral stream component of anxiety was missed by um, that early work on the prefrontal limbic circuit simply because 
he didn't think to put the electrodes there. And, yeah. and why would he have? So yeah. this is where fMRI has something to offer, I would say, and why it shouldn't be ignored. It has to be part of the toolkit. Um, but once you have the circuit, then of course you want the dynamics to come from more targeted measurements. So the way we have been approaching this problem um, initially, you know, we know that there are certain dynamic signatures, um, so let's say entropic signatures of negative feedback loops. Um, so we first apply those, you know, these entropic measures to all the time series uh, in the brain um, using fMRI. Um, and then identify the voxels um, that, that show these very different dynamics. Those then identify what we think are the nodes that matter. Yep. And then we use, so I would describe that as sort of a global approach, completely data-driven without any sort of bias about what is important and what is not important, but it identifies what's involved in a feedback loop. Yes. And mind you, again, getting back to these, these statistical tests will not tell you anything about feedback loops. That's not what they're really designed to look for. Yeah. And then um, once you've identified the components of the negative feedback loop, then you identify sort of the connectivity in terms of it has to be directed connections, what are the inputs and outputs to each of those nodes? And then from those inputs and outputs, you can derive transfer functions. And what you wind up with is, is a system of coupled differential equations. Yeah. And that, that is your generative model. At that point, you can ask, okay, what if I give a new set of inputs? What sort of behavior ought I, ought I to expect? Um, and, and that's how you start testing the model. Yeah. Um, and refining it over time. Now, the prefrontal limbic circuit that we had worked on, it took about 10 years of, I mean, I, we had 226 subjects um, at all different levels of anxiety from, as we said, anxious to reckless, um, you know, everything from clinical anxiety to trait anxiety to sort of healthy normal people to sort of trait recklessness and then extreme, uh, extreme recklessness. Of course, we had people jumping out of planes. So we had this population that allowed us to test how they responded to this actually dangerous environment. Yeah. And we saw this dysregulation that, uh, that occurred that we could sort of track over the entire spectrum. So that suggests a sort of an axis uh, of dysregulation where different types of dysregulation were associated with each end of this spectrum. Yeah. And our approach is then to say, okay, this is one axis. Can we consider what are the other axes that are relevant? Where those axes are going to be um, associated with different basic uh, functions that are psychiatrically relevant. So talking about RDoC, I could imagine an RDoC that's based on this, some sort of parameter space where you're thinking about these dysregulations for these different circuits is occurring, again, within some space where you could track them as being, you know, like this disorder is in this place of, in space and this disorder is in this place in space, yeah. um, where the space is defined by the circuits and their reg regulatory properties. Yeah, and, and it might settle um, into, yeah, I mean, right. I mean, you might have, you know, five different categories of disorders and they might be one or two circuits with specific disorders in the circuits. I mean, that would be the goal. That would be, that's a, I can imagine that happening in some regard, so. So, I mean, then we decided, all right, well, look, that took 10 years and we, we can't spend another 10 years for every circuit, right? Every iteration. So uh, we were thinking about, well, how can we speed up this process by taking what we did and automating it, doing it better? Um, and so in the last 
a few years, we've really been focused on working with um, computer scientists in thinking about algorithmically how do we take what scientists do and do it better. In, and what I mean by better is in part, do it in a way that's less biased. Um, and here's what I mean by that. So um, if we think about you know, uh, two extremes, so we can think about a pure machine learning approach where basically we have a whole bunch of data and the output is we classify into this type of disorder versus that type of disorder. Well, that might do a great job of classifying, but it doesn't necessarily tell you much about the mechanism. So it is completely unbiased, but in some sense, it doesn't advance the field really. Right. Yes. Um, the other extreme is, you know, we have a very clear hypothesis and we test that particular hypothesis, but the danger of that is that you're guessing, well, okay, I'm, I, I'm testing that hypothesis, but what about all the millions of hypotheses I'm not testing? And by the way, how many competing hypotheses would have been given exactly the same answer, right? Yeah, exactly the same uh, uh, dynamics or whatnot. And so you never know if, well, okay, maybe that hypothesis leads, leads to that outcome, but there are lots of competing hypotheses that would lead to the same outcome. Yes. So yeah. in order to do that, you really need to consider um, lots of competing hypotheses. And one way to do that is to think about um, somewhere between machine learning, which makes no assumptions about what the structure is um, and, and complete domination of those structures. You might say, okay, what are the primitives? What are the computational primitives? So if I look at your face and I were doing machine learning, I would, I would classify your face by its pixels, right? But as a human being, I look at your face and I see eyes and a nose and a mouth and hair. And if I wanna talk about you, those are the constructs I would use. Yeah. So then the question is, what are the elements that we need to give machine learning so that it can look at all the possible uh, permutations, all the combinatorial possibilities, and test all of these different hypotheses and make predictions which then allow us to say, okay, um, these are the candidate hypotheses that are consistent with our data. Yeah. And these are the candidate hypotheses that are not consistent with our data. So yeah. what it won't do is a one-to-one -one matching because there's more than one candidate hypothesis that will be consistent with your data. But what it can do is narrow the search space in yep. an unbiased way, and then allow you to then go and, and distinguish between those competing hypotheses, um, where again, the simulations can allow you to sort of optimize over where the dif differences are likely to be most extreme. Yeah, so and that's nice. really the direction we're working in now. That is cool. That's cool. I mean, it's really, that's really clever. Uh, I, I think that, right, uh, it's sort of an efficient way of searching the possibility space such that it gives you some options that are, that progress you, not quite there completely, but to a point where you can then do experiments and test these things. That's cool. That's, and you have, and, and it's called uh, brain blocks, I guess. This is uh, the platform. Neuro, neuroblocks. Neuroblocks, neuroblocks, I'm sorry. Neuroblocks is the platform for, for studying that. And, and is that is that open source or is that, uh, I mean, you've been developing yeah. this sort of thing. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it, so we haven't released it yet, but yes, it will be open source. And um, I, yeah, I can tell you something about it. So, um, so it was kind of inspired um, partially by the painful process of putting together models and thinking about how can we make this more efficient, 
Um, also, how do we communicate with other people's models? So when we're trying to put together these models, so let's say we, we want a prefrontal limbic um, ventral stream circuit or a CBGTC D1, D2 circuit, you know, we have to go to all of these different papers and try to extract the equations and whatnot. And so the question is, can we develop sort of a common grammar in, in much the same way that these software packages and neuroimaging allowed us to talk about results from different groups because there were common pipelines. Can we do something similar for computational modeling um, where we create these libraries of models and people can then work with what other people have already done and test different elements of them and change something and see what, how do the simulations change if we test this versus that, what models are replicating over time, in which case they sort of go up the leaderboard, which models are getting disconfirmed by experiments, in which case they go down the leaderboard. And in that way, create sort of a crowdsource consensus as to which models seem to be working and which ones are not. Yeah. Um, but again, you can't have many, many, many groups um, working with the same models unless they're speaking a common language. Um, so Neuroblox is designed to be modular. Um, and I'll explain what that means in just a moment. Um, it's explicitly multi-scale, multimodal, and multi-system. So what I mean by multi-scale is it has everything from the neuronal all the way up to fMRI. Um, it's multimodal because it has fMRI, MEG, EEG, uh, local field potential, and so forth. Um, and it's multi-system because one of the uh, aspects that I think is really underappreciated in the context of psychiatric disorders is the degree to which the neural circuits are interacting with other physiological circuits. And there's feedback between the rest of the body and the brain, and that becomes relevant in some mm. cases. So could you expand so, on that just a little bit? I mean, that one point, I, I'm kind of, I'm trying to picture like what, what would be an example of uh, uh, interacting with the body in some sense in, in terms of constraining the model? Uh, um, well, so, I mean, uh, so one example that, that I uh, speaks to me personally because I had Graves' disease. I mean, when we met, actually, I was very symptomatic. Um, so Graves' disease is an autoimmune disorder that affects the thyroid, right? And one of the consequences of this is that your metabolism goes higher, higher, higher. So you're really hypermetabolic and you have very high heart rate and whatever. Um, but I didn't realize this. What I did know was that I was suffering from massive anxiety. Hmm. And so, you know, if yeah. you were to, to look at me at that time, you'd say, oh, this is a person who's extremely anxious, you know, having panic, you know, attacks and whatnot. You might take me to a psychiatrist and have me talk yeah. about my childhood and my my conflicts and so forth. But the reality is it was an autoimmune disorder. So it wasn't even about the thyroid, it was really the immune system. Yeah. So, you know, it's really, again, you know, um, how many psychiatric disorders implicate other systems where we're not even clear to what degree they are driven by the brain or if the brain is simply where that disorder manifests itself in terms of behavior. Yeah. Um, so one of the disorders I'm very interested in is bipolar disorder because it's a, you know, very much a dynamical, um, you know, a disease yeah. um, where you have this trajectory of oscillations or periodicity and, you know, but there's so many disruptions in that disorder. I mean, there are circadian disruptions, right? And there are autonomic disruptions and, and it, it's not even clear whether, you know, there's some element from some other part of the body that's influencing the brain 
or whether the brain is influencing those other systems. So um, one of the nice things about the modeling um, capabilities of neuroblocks is that it allows you to test those hypotheses in silica and okay. then to start being able to um, determine what would be the ideal experiment to establish what are the driving mechanisms. Okay, okay. So let me just ask a question along those lines then. So, so you have the neuroblocks and you have, uh, you have some data and that constrains it and you finally find a, a good circuit or, or a good uh, hyp hypothetical sort of generative model that, ex that sort of explains it. And, and then, okay, so now you can, let's say you can use that to, you know, you have then this disparate data like either fMRI or EG just help kind of diagnose a patient. I mean, maybe that can be used to sort of constrain uh, constrain what what's going on, but also, but then the question is, you know, how do you how do you intervene? I mean, maybe the the model itself could suggest specific ways of intervening, and then if yes, you, yeah. So the the model is also specifically designed. These models have uh, they're they're I mean, neurotransmitters are part of the model. So because most of our um, pharmacological interventions are targeting neurotransmitters, be, you know, it's important to be able to understand that certain connections, uh, certain, you know, components of the circuit are dopaminergic, D2 versus D1 versus, you know, acetylcholine and so forth. And so um, that adds a layer of complexity that I think also will be important in, in, in um, understanding the dynamics. I should also mention that Neuroblocks is not just coming out of my lab. It's a collaboration with um, Alan Edelman and Earl Miller at MIT and Rick Ranger at Dartmouth and Hellman at Stony Brook. So um, the idea behind the, the Neuroblocks and the modularity, as I was mentioning, is that we, you know, one of the cool aspects is that you first have to ask, what are those computational primitives in the brain? So we also, in neuroimaging often talk about processing, but in a sort of metaphorical sense. Yeah. Um, because even within, let's say, models like DCM, um, you have, you know, something is affecting this and this is affecting that, but it's not clear what is the actual processing that is happening. So at some point, if we think that there's actual processing, we have to be a little bit more specific about um, what's going on. So, um, you know, in the context of of an electrical circuit, if you wanted to look at a circuit diagram um, in double E, you know, you'd have resistors and capacitors and, you know, batteries and all of these elements that would allow you to construct circuits from them. And yeah. so the question is, what are those in the brain? Um, and so that was, that's one of the kind of interesting scientific contributions from Neuroblocks is we have to sort of go back and say, even at the neuronal level, how does this processing occur? So in other words, if in our model, we want a filter, because we think that this region of the brain is acting as a filter, biophysically, what is the mechanism by which that filtering happens? Or if there's a gain over here, what is the mechanism by which that happens? You know, right. so um, we're being kind of careful about that. We're, you know, there's a, a tendency when you're doing modeling to just make it work. But yeah. for us, it's not enough to make it work. It has to also be biomimetic. It needs to say something biophysically realistic about how the neuronal processing is, is thought to happen. So, so right, you could, I mean, you can break it down to some degree to, like you said, uh, either gain in terms of, or inhibition, excitation, 
um, you know, and so you can, it's, it's interesting to try to figure out, you know, with the concept of, cal of calculation, uh, whether that can be broken down into what we know neurons do. I mean, they increase excitability, they decrease excitability, they, and they might- Well, they do more than that. Yeah, they do much more than <laughs> they, that, but it'd be interesting- They do to... more than increase and decrease, right. is what I'm, what I'm saying. Yeah, and, and it would be interesting to try to make a library of these elements of, of what they do uh, in that regard to help constrain what so it means. So those are the blocks. Yeah. So we have, we have libraries of these computational primitives, which are the blocks. Um, these are coming from, again, the animal literature. Uh, Rick Ranger has taken the lead in, I mean, this is what he does. He's been doing it his whole career, um, really identifying these um, neuronally generated uh, processing units. And those then create the, the lowest foundation here of, of these uh, circuit diagrams where multiple components of these blocks then can create you know, super blocks, yep. um, and then multiple of those super blocks then also combined. And so again, you have the capability for nested control circuits where you can go from the lowest level all the way to the highest, most emergent scale. Yeah. But at every scale, you're talking about a control circuit. And yeah. the reason why you want that ability to go from the lowest scale to the highest scale is getting again back to metabolism. Yeah. Metabolism is you know, the, the mechanism for metabolism is happening at the lowest scale, right? Mm. So if we're going to be changing parameters, they're going to be at the very bottom layer. Yes. So any model that's going to be something you can adjust has to be adjustable at the lowest level to be able yes. to ask what happens if we, if we change metabolism here, what is going to be the impact for the circuit behavior, the, the regulation of the circuit as a whole? Yeah. That's cool. I mean, right. The emergent, the emergent behavior of, of, you know, metabolism change in some sense, you could, you could predict this and have testable models for what would happen. So that's, that's really a nice, it seems like it's kind of like the, you know, it's a lever for, for making uh, more of an impact in terms of understanding this, this huge amount of disparate data in that regard, you have to build models and construct them based on what you know and what you're doing. And it's all nonlinear. It's all interact. It's all homeostatic and, uh, there's these controlled uh, mechanisms and and yeah I think I I don't know of many I you know I'm you know I'm obviously not an expert in this area but I this strikes me as as very novel and and really important as far as that's concerned um, and I do think yeah I do think it it will have you know our doc is always looking for these inroads into these measures and what they mean and and we to go beyond just simply like you're saying measures. Uh, that would be biomarkers. You you really want to, to get a little bit more leverage uh, in this scene. Well, like the irony way. is that our field has been talking about you know this all along. We've all along been talking about circuits and talking about processing. So yeah. I think at this point, what we're really trying to do is to transition away from being a metaphor to being something that is really mechanistic. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean. Exactly. And, and, you know, to, to, to bring that another example is that, you know, a lot of times, right, if you look at any book about brain function, you have these arrows connecting these, these regions of the brain, and they say, oh, this influences this. And, and now instead of just having that sort of metaphorical, you, you, you actually have, you know, real connections, and there's real communication, and what does that imply? So 
That's that's awesome. And it's beyond so connections, again, really thinking sort of like what are the operations that are occurring at each point? Yes. So yes, yes. That's which is fundamentally each node is not just a node, it's doing something special. And yeah, and exactly. That node, that node is itself a circuit. Yeah. It's doing something. And so we'd like to kind of understand at the bottom layer what it's doing. Yes. Yeah. And I think I think you'll I think this is going to make rapid progress uh, in the future. Um, yeah, no, this is all very exciting, and um, I'm very excited. I mean, I actually so for me, what was really fun about this is that most of us, you know, when we develop in-house software for ourselves, you know, we're all kind of amateurs, but we do it for ourselves, and and it sort of works, but. We decided, you know, that we were really going to make this be sort of commercial grade. And as a result, you know, we're working with professional software developers and um, thinking through all of the elements of how do you design a GUI that makes sense. And, and so I had two comments that, I mean, I gave talks in the last few months where I heard two comments, different places, but they were really, um, really helpful. One of them was by an electrophysiologist. Um, works on animal research and you know mitochondria very much in the space that I'm interested in but she was very very intimidated by the whole idea of computational modeling and she said you know I'm really excited by what you're doing but I, I need to let you know I will never use it because the whole thing sounds so incredibly scary I wouldn't even know where to begin okay so that's comment number one and then comment number two was from a computational neuroscientist who told me that um most computational neuroscientists would rather use someone else's toothbrush than use someone else's code. And that was pretty vivid, I must say. And so, you know, I mean, you have to optimize over both parameters. So when you're trying to create a tool like this, it has to be the usability needs to be intuitive enough that someone who's a really, you know, brilliant neuroscientist but doesn't know anything necessarily about programming or you know control circuits or whatnot can walk in and you know use the intuitions that they know you know that they have experimental data to support and then create these models by the way one of the features of the software is that it will export the equations hmm. so when you draw the circuits it actually generates equations that then are exported so oh, that's, that's very cool. helpful for those who don't think in terms of equations yeah. but for the computational neuroscientists it also needs to be something that is sophisticated and rigorous enough that they feel like this adds value to what they already do. I think the greatest added value is the ability to directly compare competing models. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think that, you, I mean, right, you, you've hit it on the head in terms of how usable this is. It, it sort of speaks to maybe the field in some regard. I mean, so you could, you know, just thinking analogously to like, you know, processing packages for fMRI. I mean, you know, everyone agrees on, you know, what smoothing is or, this type of thing, but it seems like in this domain, it seems that there maybe people feel like it's somewhat, it's still somewhat, even though you have equations and you have relationships, it's somehow idiosyncratic how they implement those in some regard. I mean, it seems like there's still some extra uh, disagreement as to what the standards are or, you know, what the, you know, appropriate. Well, I mean, we're starting with the uh, CBGTC and prefrontal limbic ventral stream circuits because we think those are the ones that where you get the most bang for your buck in terms of psychiatric applications. 
Um, but for each one of these, if you, it's, re it's really painful because when you go and look at all the different models um, that have been worked on and have been empirically supported, generally they are tested within a very specific context. Yeah. And so um, being able to extract the elements from each one of those and then say, okay, here's the sort of the consensus circuit. Um, it, it's, it's made clear to me how much this is needed because yes. Yes. how can the field progress if in fact, even for someone who's comfortable looking at computational models, it becomes so painful to try to um, figure out what they all have in common. Yeah, yeah, and it's all, it really does, I mean, and not only that, I mean, suddenly do they, does it, um, give information as to, you know, maybe more refined information as to sp the specific interactions. But to me, it actually even uh, sort of helps form these general ideas of, you know, uh, the, the concepts of homeostasis, that, that it's dysregulated, like, you know, you can describe every single psychiatric disorder as some form of, you know, either going, becoming too ordered and not responding to the environment enough or becoming overreactive to the environment in some way, either social or, or actual. And it seems like, you know, you, I'm sure this has been done very, very well before, but sort of doing, looking at it that way, this sort of model actually makes it concrete in terms of circuits. Right. And are... you, can, you can quantify the response to perturbation, first of all. So what is the kind of the degree to which the circuit kind of responds to perturbation? But then also, yeah, the control error. So the yeah. control error might be homeostatic, um, but it might also be in the context re of reinforcement learning in terms ah. of kind of converging on learning. So it's not always homeostatic. Um, I should mention, you know, it's interesting because when you look at the field of, let's say, computational psychiatry, which seems to have really blossomed within the last few years. It's interesting that when people talk about computational psychiatry, usually they mean either these massive machine learning approaches that I described, yeah. which are essentially model-free, or, or these are, are there are algorithms, reinforcement learning algorithms that are kind of um, more like cognitive science. They are, algorithms that predict behavior based on different sort of processing um, steps, but those are not biomimetic at all. So what you wanna do is to kind of marry the, the algorithms that we think are describing how people are behaving and mapping them onto some actual circuit processing steps. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting. So, um, so we're starting to run low on time, but um, just to finish up a little bit, uh, um, you know, we've already, I think that, you know, I was going to ask you if there's any big projects or things that are exciting to you is, I mean, uh, the, the NeuroBlocks is obviously a big aspect of this. And, uh, and you certainly are, you know, you're using uh, fMRI, EEG, uh, optical imaging as well, I, I imagine, or uh, maybe to some degree. Uh, well, so the, for the neuroblocks, I mean, basically, um, we're using a combination of fMRI, MEG, energy. and um, local field potentials. So, okay. um, you know, so trying to validate models, uh, you know, in non-human primates, this is where Earl Miller's contribution is invaluable. Um, you know, you when you create models, you need to test them, right? So the idea is that it's it's great, again, to use fMRI as an exploratory measure in terms of accessing all elements of the circuit, but at some point then you need to test that the dynamics 
you think are occurring are actually occurring. And that's where the non-human primate experiments come in. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, uh, so maybe the last thing, uh, um, is there any, so is there any sort of advice that, that, uh, you know, to young scientists, I think you would be a great example for young scientists who, who sort of, you know, scientists are, it's all about forging your path. And is there any advice that you would give to young scientists going into the, going into brain mapping, for instance, or even neuroscience in general? Um, um I mean, I, I think that um, there's a tendency I've noticed in students is that uh, they, there's, there's a general tendency to um, follow established pathways. The thought is that if something is hot right now, that's what you ought to be doing because it's hot. And my own thought is that um, generally it's more fulfilling and interesting to think about a different, you know, not what's hot, but what's important. Um, and the other piece of advice I would give is that in following your decision for what's important, it's wise not to get too caught up in artificial distinctions of fields um, because the best tools might come from many unexpected places. Um, as I mentioned, you know, many decades worth of modeling physiological control circuits completely out of the brain were very helpful in thinking through what might be happening in the brain. Um, you know, population dynamics, thinking about predator-prey type models turn out also to be useful in thinking about regulation and so forth. So thinking across scales, being able to think across modalities, different fields, um, I think generally having a kind of a flexible approach um, and being kind of more question-driven as opposed to technique-driven, I think um, has been helpful. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And, and you know, Right. If people are technique driven, they, they become married to a technique and their questions are very limited. And in fact, we're still, I mean, the big question, right, is the big problem is coming up with the best questions. And and, you've and I would say that. that the corollary to that is also allow yourself to be surprised, because I also think a danger is getting very invested in hypotheses and not noticing that often some of our greatest discoveries happen when the data surprise us. Um, and being kind of, again, sort of cognitively flexible enough to embrace that rather than suppressing it is, is a good idea, I think. Yeah, and that's a skill, I think, also that comes over time. And, and I totally agree with you. That's great advice. Um, yeah, all right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, Peter. Nice to see you. Good to see you. Next time in person, I hope. Yes, definitely, definitely. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Anastasia Brovkin and Alfie Wine.